Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you learn about what rain is like on other planets, why it took Americans a long time to start using forks with help from Jason Pfeiffer, and whether it's more important to sleep or exercise. Let's exercise some curiosity. Earth is a special place. And the fact that it rains liquid water here is actually a big part of that. But just because Earth is the only planet with abundant water doesn't mean it's the only place where it rains. Rain is more common in the solar system than you might think, although sometimes it just looks a bit different. Let's talk about how. Most worlds in our solar system have precipitation, and they don't let their lack of water get in the way. Take Venus, which gives the phrase acid rain a whole new meaning. There, sulfuric acid condenses in the clouds and falls down as rain. But because Venus is so hot, this rain never reaches the surface. Instead, it evaporates in the intense heat of the lower atmosphere. Saturn's largest moon, Titan, has seasons that come with rain. NASA's Cassini spacecraft spotted liquid methane raining on Titan's North Pole when it passed by. The weird thing is that clouds don't form on Titan, so the jury's still out on how exactly methane cycles work on the massive moon. Mars is known to have water, but the water we know about is frozen. So instead, it snows frozen carbon dioxide, also known as dry ice. Scientists know this because instruments on the satellite known as the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter first detected clouds of the stuff that extended all the way to the surface back in 2012. But those planets have nothing on Neptune and Uranus. It rains diamonds on these planets. Hmm, probably. We don't know for sure because we can't directly detect it. See, both planets are gas giants, meaning the planets themselves are giant rocks covered in a thick soup of methane and other gases, tens of thousands of kilometers thick. Experiments on Earth have shown that when methane is compressed at the crushing pressures found about 7,000 kilometers beneath the surface of those dense gases, methane is compressed into diamonds. This means that diamonds might form and hurtle toward the surface like hailstones. Theoretically. The weird thing is that raindrops on other planets are probably around the same size as those on Earth, one to four millimeters or so. That's because no matter the material, raindrops smaller than one tenth of a millimeter in diameter tend to evaporate in the high atmosphere, while much larger drops tend to break apart. This all makes rain a surprisingly uniform size. While raindrops are probably bigger on planets with weaker gravity, it's likely not by much, only about 10 to 20 millimeters, or about the size of an aspirin. So there are similarities all over the solar system. Other planets, they're just like us. One of us. One of us. <laughs> From soccer to the metric system, Americans have a long history of brushing off anything they see as European. Would you believe that the fork is one of those things? We learn about this from today's guest, Jason Pfeiffer. He's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine and the host of Build for Tomorrow, a podcast about the curious things from history that shaped us and how we can shape the future. Jason told us that while the fork had a long, difficult journey to adoption in Europe, that was nothing compared to its challenges here in the United States. Here's Jason. So the fork comes over 
with the colonialists, but it's not generally accepted or embraced in America. And there are there are a number of scandals in which government leaders use a fork and then are condemned for doing so. And the idea here, the reason why people were really not into it is because they saw the fork as a representation of elite Europe, which of course America was defining itself against. They saw the fork as a tool of the European elite. And, you know, Americans are not elitists. They are people of the land at the time. It was a very agricultural society. And so they were not going to eat with the fork. And they were right in one sense. They were right in that the fork was kind of a tool of the elite because it was really expensive. You know, there's a reason why we use the word silverware, and that's because silver was about the best metal that you could use for an object that you put in your mouth, right? You don't want to use steel. It rusts. It's, it's disgusting. It makes the food taste bad. It's not good for it's, it's unhealthy to put in your mouth. You could use gold, but that's even more expensive. And so silver had really always for a very long time become the metal that you would use to make utensils. and. This is a problem because most people can't afford silver. And so they would save up and then buy, and this is going back hundreds of years, they would go up and they buy a spoon and a knife because those were acceptable objects on a table, right? The spoon shows up in the Bible and the knife is for hunting. These are things that are familiar. But the fork, even when it had become commonplace, wasn't something that people really wanted to spend on. It was a luxury item and it seemed unnecessary until the 1840s when silver plating is invented. And when silver plating is invented, and then shortly after that, the Comstock load is, is discovered, and then the price of silver drops, now you can create a fork that has all the qualities that you needed from before, a silver fork, but now it's not made of pure silver. It is available and affordable to the masses. And now everybody starts to use it because now the fork has stopped being an elitist thing and has started to become a common person's thing. And so that's when Americans start to adopt it. And by the way, there's a lesson there. And the lesson is that oftentimes when new innovations are introduced and people reject them, we look back now and we can see that the reason why we rejected them, the reason why people rejected them wasn't because they didn't understand that it could be valuable, but that because it was so expensive that it was only available to the elite and the elite were just jerks about how they used it. <laughs> they were just obnoxious about it. Like the first cars were only available to the elite. And what did what did people do with it? Well, they just went on joy rides through the countryside. They like slammed into farmers' dogs and chickens, and they spilled oil all over the place. So yeah, the way to get adoption, culturally speaking, is often to be very mindful of how a new innovation can be accessible to the masses, and price is a big part of that. The final fun thing here is that once the fork becomes available to the common person, the elite who loved that the fork was only available to them wanted a fork that could only be for them. So companies like Tiffany and these other high-end silver companies started to create these endless lines of hyper-specific pure silver or gold forks 
you might have seen some of these randomly across time and just didn't know what you were looking at. There would be, well, I mean, we have some of them, an olive fork, a fish fork, but there was also a macaroni fork and an ice cream fork. Uh, ice cream was, was eaten with a fork for a very long time. Um, there was just a very long, hilarious line of specialty forks. And the reason that those existed was because high-end companies were trying to serve an elite marketplace who felt like their status symbol, the fork, had been taken away from them. And so they were kind of trying to scramble up the mountain and find something that was even more elite, even more special, so that they could continue to feel so. I don't know about you, but I will never look at oyster forks the same way again. For more stories like this, check out Jason Pfeiffer's podcast, Build for Tomorrow. We'll include a link in today's show notes. Sleep? And exercise are both important. But is one of them more important? Here's a story we remastered from 2018 to help you find out. If you went to bed late and your alarm goes off to go to a gym class, then which is worse, skipping your workout or losing an hour of sleep? There are pros and cons to both, so let's get into what scientific research has shown. I know what I would do, sleep. And I would probably work out. <laughs> <laughs> but... I think there are times when both of those are the right answer. Sure. Can't wait to find out. So first, let's talk about the pros and cons of sleeping in. One perk is that you'll have a better workout next time. That's based on a 2013 study that found that people who slept longer each night ended up having longer, higher quality workouts. But a different 2013 study found a pretty major drawback. It found that skipping 30 minutes of sleep in favor of 30 minutes of moderate to heavy physical activity can lead to improvements in cardiovascular health. But there are pros and cons to dragging yourself out of bed when you're short on sleep, too. One perk is that you'll sleep better the following night. Studies show that even a little bit of exercise can have a big impact on sleep quality, especially if you're dealing with insomnia or sleep apnea. Waking up and working out can also be good for your mental health. After all, exercise has been shown to reduce depression and anxiety and just boost your mood overall. But there are a couple drawbacks to cutting sleep to work out. First and foremost is that your workout could suffer. It's not just your brain that has circadian rhythms. Research from 2016 says it's your muscles, too. Muscle cells work better during their biological daytime than their biological night. So if you wake up when your muscles think you should be sleeping, they won't serve you quite as well. Studies have also shown that you might be hungrier if you're short on sleep, and that can make it harder to stick to your diet. The takeaway from all this research is that the best thing to do depends on your history. If you tend to skip more workouts than shut-eye, then forcing yourself to get up for a run before work might do you good. If you exercise regularly but don't get enough sleep, allow yourself to hit the snooze button. And maybe find another exercise time that works better for you. It's time once again to recap what we learned today, starting with the fact that rain is pretty common in our solar system, even though sometimes that rain is sulfuric acid or methane or dry ice or maybe even diamonds. No matter what's raining down, the drops are probably about the same size as raindrops here on Earth, because drops that are too small would evaporate in the high atmosphere, and drops that are too big would break apart. And those would be terrible outcomes on a planet where it's raining cats and dogs. Yikes. <laughs> this just got really gory in my head. <laughs> and we learned that in the U.S., forks used to be seen as elitist because they were made from pure silver, which was expensive. Once forks became more affordable, elites got upset and they wanted special forks all for their own. 
So luxury brands came up with hyper-specific specialty forks for things like olives, fish, macaroni, ice cream, and the list goes on. Have you ever used, this isn't a fork, but have you ever used a grapefruit spoon? What? Yeah, it's, it's a spoon with like a sharp serrated tip that you can use to kind of cut into like a, a grapefruit half. They're very handy. We had we had them growing up. I, I was not rich growing up. We just we had grapefruit spoons because we ate a lot of grapefruit. Ashley, that's a spork. <laughs> it's not a spork. A spork has tines. This is more of like a knife situation at the tip. It's it's a spice. That's more more <laughs> like it. <laughs> I'm picturing a spoon with a bayonet. <laughs> I don't think that's what you're going for, but I, I'll I'll take your word for it. It's like a, if a spoon and a shark had a baby. A spark. Perfect. There we go. We also learned that sleep and exercise are both important, so try to get plenty of both. But if you tend to skip one more than the other, then try to switch things up once in a while. I'm not a morning person. We know this. It's well documented. But also after work, I am way too tired to exercise. So during the day, while my nanny is here and while I'm working in my office, that's when I take a lunch break and I exercise because it's the only time I have to myself and it's been working. Ashley, I've been scheduling my workouts into my day and I've been working out for three weeks and it's three weeks. Wow. Yeah. Good for yes. you. Thank you. Just a few times a week, but still like I'm very, I'm very happy. So if, uh, if you haven't been able to find time for yourself to exercise, try and put it on your calendar. Schedule it. Then that way it cuts down on decision fatigue, too. I've been doing this with work, too, more. is like, what exactly am I going to work on tomorrow? And then that way I don't have 45 tabs open and I'm just flipping through them all willy-nilly trying to decide what to do. It's just like, no, today I'm doing X and Y and I'm going to close my email and I'm not going to worry about this other stuff. And uh, it's been great. So schedules are good. Absolutely. The writer for today's first story was Cameron Duke. Our managing editor is Ashley Hammer, who is also a writer on today's episode. Our producer and audio editor is Cody Goff. You can take today's episode and stick a fork in it, because we're done. So join us again tomorrow to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. 